0: Welcome to PICT Voices, the interview series conducted by the faculty of the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking with notable members of the broader PICT community. Our goal is to present our community with a variety of voices across the spectrum of the humanities and critical creative thinking. My name is Christoph van Houten, and today I am joined by Sunetra Gupta, Professor of Theoretical Epidemiology at the (laughs) University of Oxford. Hello, Sunetra, and welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for being here. Now, I'm very pleased that you have agreed to talk to us here at PICT, and we are obviously very interested in knowing a bit more about a document that you co-authored and that has brought you in the spotlights lately. I'm obviously talking about the Great Barrington Declaration, where you and two other colleagues, Dr. Kuldroff and Dr. Bhattacharya, call for a change in policy in tackling this COVID 19 pandemic. Now, considering you co authored this declaration, could you maybe give a quick summary of what it is you are calling for?
1: Okay, so um, the starting point um, for all of us, I think, was really that the costs of lockdown were too profound for it to be um, a viable tool for um, responding to this pandemic. So if that's the case, then you're left with the question of how then can we minimize the deaths that would occur if we just let the disease run its course or the epidemic run its course? And quite independently, the three of us and many others, had arrived at the solution that because this virus is not equally lethal in everybody um, and because we have a very good idea of who it might kill, and because in most of the population, the death rates are very, very low, that we could arrive at a workable solution by shielding, selectively shielding those who are vulnerable over the period that the pandemic would rage, um, subsequent to which we would reach a position where there was enough immunity in the population that the risks of infection to those who are vulnerable would come down to levels that we currently tolerate for a range of other pathogens, including four other circulating coronaviruses. So the destination um, is th- that we're looking for is one where we're back to where we are at anyway, with le- let's say the best example here is are the four other coronaviruses. So if that's our destination, how do we get there uh, without, in- enduring the costs of this big epidemic hump and the solution that the Great Brampton Declaration proposes principally involves shielding the vulnerable while allowing the rest of the population to carry on as normal in order to protect their livelihoods and stop um, other problems um, accruing.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Now, before... I ask you some questions. I would like to make a preliminary clarification. I'm no medical scholar, so there is little argument for me regarding the medical merits of this declaration. But I don't think this necessarily limits the topics we can talk about. In fact, you write in your personal page at the University of Oxford that you're also interested in the public understanding of science and also in the connections between science and literature at the level of language and narrative. And if it is okay for you, I would like to delve a little bit deeper into the narrative around this declaration that you co-authored, which I think think is of equal importance as the purely medical merits it could have. Now, you three co-authors are all medical professionals, and you all have expertise in infectious disease. And a large number of the signatories of your declaration are medical professionals as, as well. Now, how come your advice is so completely different than the one offered by those other medical professionals who, however, mainly work for the policymakers? I presume you all have more or less, you are are all more or less looking at the same data. So how come you can tell such a different story?
1: Well, uh, the the clue is in the word narrative or story. So Mm. it's about how you build uh, a story around the data that you're presented. And this is not to suggest that data can be manipulated to fit a story. No, no, no. The narrative has to arise from the data. Exactly. So I often liken the um, emergence of narratives, which is a subject that interests me considerably.
0: Mm.
1: I liken it both in the sciences and in the arts, to um, a sort of a highly complex process whereby, you know, you integrate a a set of facts, data in this case, but if you're writing or creating a work of literature or or painting, uh, those data are replaced by other elements, such as the characters, which may have Uh kind of evolved, or certain emotions, or... Whatever the material is that you you are playing with, and often you reach a point—at least I do—when I'm writing and when I'm doing science, where you have all these um, data or elements of what will be your narrative. But what you're trying to do then is fit it all together into something that's coherent. And by coherent, I don't—I mean something that. Um, exists of its own right, has has a sort of integrity, as it's an integrity that is defined by a set of considerations which are easier perhaps to define in the sciences than the arts. But there is that moment when it all comes, crystallizes. And one um, uh, metaphor I've used to, to help explain this is, um, an object I have used in fact, is, something called a perspective box. So in the 16th century, um, the Dutch, among others, uh, were obsessed with perspective and they created these boxes, um, one of which I saw on display in the National Gallery some years ago. And what it is is a box where the five sides of it are painted and the sixth side lets light in. And if you look through the sixth side, the painted sides look really crazy. They look like a cubist painting almost. Mm -hmm. But then there are two holes drilled on either side of the box. And once you put your eyes to one of these holes, everything kind of coalesces into a very detailed and coherent Dutch interior, interior Dutch house. Mm -hmm. So that, for me, kind of... um, captures the process of creating a narrative. Um, so with that long digression, <laughs> I think that the, the... But you said you... <laughs> um, and the narrative you is fine. <laughs> <laughs> with fair warning here. Um, so I think that the narratives that have been pulled out from the data um, are very different. And indeed, in March this year, when everything started to sort of happen um i one of the the piece uh, a paper that we my research group uh, we put out there did exactly what we're saying is um highlighted the possibility of different narratives cohering to the same data so there was just one narrative that was being pulled out at mm-hmm. the time, by my fellow modellers. And that was one which said, a lot of people are going to die, the pandemic, is, the epidemic is only just taking off, and unless we do something, we're going to see, in the UK alone, sort of half a million deaths. Mm. So, um, but in reality, um, or I felt it was important to establish that actually, the, very, the same data could be used in the service of a different narrative or indeed a whole range of narratives. Mm. Um, and so we were not in a position at that point to believe in that one narrative. So, so there has been, what, what you're talking about is, in fact, precisely that, a difference in the narratives that have been um, constructed and adhered to by different groups. Mm.
0: But at least you're fair and square to say it's a narrative while the others say that they stick to the facts. Anyway... There's
1: no such thing. I mean, you always construct a narrative in science.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I completely agree. As a philosopher, you you only treat with the narrative.
1: (laughs) Everything is understood through Mm. models, and a narrative is a model, essentially.
0: Mm. Yeah. A somewhat larger topic, changing a bit uh, the topic, the, the context here, a somewhat larger topic I would like to address is that of the negative reactions you have received. Obviously not all reactions were negative but it has to be said that there have been some very negative reactions that were made very public. So uh, there are four questions but they're very short questions so um, we, we, we can do, we can cover them quickly. Now the first question is that if you anticipated this negativity, and how much did this expectation affect your writing of this document?
1: So, um, by the time we wrote that document, there was already quite a, a big backlash. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, the initial response was one of almost um, silence and, you know, uh, dismissal through um, silence. Mm. Uh, but as we became more and more vocal and visible, um, clear that there, there had already started to be um, a number of kind of attacks um, on our position. So by the time we got to writing the document, this it was clear that there was a very strong opposition to what we were saying or it. Indeed, the other narrative had been so well established and had been adopted by some clearly as a kind of creed. So we knew that we were straying into quite dangerous territory at that point. Um, However, I really never anticipated that um, any kind of proposal like the Great Barrington Declaration would draw the kind of criticism that it has provoked
0: mm. and maybe you you intend what my next question is about and, and so we can get the elephant out of the room how much did you foresee that the discussion would become so politically loaded um i i i, re-
1: I did not expect my fellow academics to take the position they did which mm. um you know whether the, the their I mean, I don't wish to question their motives, so I don't know whether it's political or simply because they just can't see that it would work, but certainly the way it was couched was in terms of um, questioning our motives Mm. much of the time, which was uh, surprising. I mean, obviously one would expect and indeed welcome uh, criticism of the basic ideas, or the proposal itself needed, I mean, the practicalities of implementing what we were suggesting could, you know, you'd almost want someone to uh. approach that critically. And what I did not expect is for close colleagues and friends to um, imply that we were puppets of um, far right libertarians. Uh. Uh. Um, that we had been paid to write this i mean the the it it was quite astonishing mm. the level of ad hominem mm.
0: um, insults that were yeah you don't expect st- that in scientific circles i think no, well. now many critics of your declaration also referred to the fact that many of the signatories because one can sign the declaration as well, that they are fake people. Now, there are some rather strange names on the list, but having some fake signatories does not theoretically diminish the value of the declaration in itself. So why do you think also this aspect became suddenly so important?
1: Well, exactly. I think there was a great deal of, um, you know, what I would call scraping the barrel Mm. for anything to, to throw at us. So, like you say... Uh, If you put up a petition or a declaration and you say, come and sign it, there will be people who sign it either for fun or out of malice. And, I mean, a a simple answer to that is, well, you know, there will be a proportion of signatures which are fake. And you can ask the person who's leveling that criticism to you to choose a proportion. Mm. What do they want? 50 percent? I mean. Last I looked, there were seven hundred and fifty thousand signatures. So, you know, you can discount it by whatever you like. I think you still get quite a high number. But, um, but why you would dwell? Why would you would choose to highlight that? And indeed, you know, there were academics who tweeted about it, Mm. mocked us. There was a, there was, there's been a general tone of mockery, Mm. which is really um, unpleasant, quite disturbing.
0: Mm. Now, my last question on these negative reactions. And I think, I personally think that one of the main reasons why you received such hard, hard reactions was that you referred to that by now extremely loaded term of herd immunity. Why did you insist on this term? And, and if you think that the term can be salvaged, wouldn't it have been good to contextualize it a little bit? Maybe saying, for example, that herd immunity is also reached through vaccination so that it is not necessarily letting our grandparents die like Boris Johnson almost let it seem at the beginning of the pandemic.
1: Well, you know, in, herd immunity is a term that I have been using for the last 35 years um, as a harmless term. Uh, it's a harmless description, really, of the growth of immunity in a population and the protection that it offers. When you have a number of people in the population who are already immune to something, a pathogen, this provides a wall of protection. So, herd immunity is, um, in my head, a very positive term. In fact, The main reason to use that concept is to um, reassure people that, for example, you don't need everyone to be vaccinated or everyone to be immune for infection levels to drop to manageable levels. Um, As soon as you have a certain fraction of the population that is immune, you are already in in a safe sort of territory. So. For me, the concept of herd immunity um, was, uh, you know, as Martin Kuldoff has uh, pointed out, you know, it's a bit like gravity. So (laughs) you don't really uh, think of a a term so fundamental Mm. as, as being something that you need to avoid. Also, I must confess, I was probably not quite as aware of how it had been misappropriated to um, mean how it had been co-opted to to um, sort of suggest that it was a strategy whereby, in the process of achieving herd immunity, one would be perfectly happy to let people die, mm. which is a completely other concept. Mm. So I hadn't realized the two had become so um, inextricably mm. welded.
0: Yeah, it, it kind of did, unfortunately. Now, in all of this, I think that one of the major and important points, if not the major point of the declaration was almost indefinitely shelved. That is the terrible effects of lockdown. How come do you think it is that this got lost in the debate around your declaration?
1: Well, um, maybe because that is the main uncomfortable truth. Mm. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a way of deflecting the, the debate from what do we do given the costs of lockdown to um, sort of the opposite pole, which is, are we going to let this kill a lot of people or not? And the fact is that the great Barrington Declaration or the focused protection policy that it um, recommends uh, would kill, you know. You could argue it would, that fewer people would die under focused protection than they would under repeated lockdowns, even from coronavirus itself. But mm. that those are kind of academic discussions, which, as you say, fail to see the real point, which is that lockdowns are not an option. Mm. And so maybe it was a sort of um, deflection from that point so what i've done subsequently we, we all have done sub- subsequently is uh, set up uh, another um uh, project which we're calling global collateral mm-hmm. and what we're looking at there is the damage or should we say just the effects of lockdowns globally mm-hmm. and our plan is to archive these effects so that we have this repository that is available to policymakers and anyone else who wishes to study the impact of lockdowns and what our plan is to um, have it as this resource and also on the back of what we are archiving to use that already to try and make some analyses, impact analyses, because I think that is actually the critical realisation that, um, you know, that, that, that as you uh, rightfully say, as you rightly point out, has been, um, you know, kind of sidestepped.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, you were talking about the focus protection. And, and I do have a comment on a, because of a, a recent podcast that I had with Professor Ruth Finkelstein from Hunter College in New York, and and she's an exp- expert on, uh, we can call it aging. Now she said, and I think that she made a very good point, that we have to be very careful about this narrative of the vulnerability of the old. And mm-hmm. I think she made a very good point in putting it that not all people, not all old people are equally vulnerable. And I think here the biggest problem uh, for this focused protection is that the category of the old people and the infirm who, who would need the most protection are also most difficult to protect. I mean, they can't simply sit at home, these people, and wait this pandemic out as the most advantages can because they hardly ever have a home to themselves alone or because they are oftentimes still active breadwinners. I think in in our economic system, the ones you justly want to protect are also the ones that need protection from this protection, if I make my point. Um,
1: So there are a lot of issues packed into that. First of all, um, well, first of all, yes, it is uh, absolutely the case that the vulnerable, you don't just have an age cutoff. the vulnerable within the elderly some people are very vulnerable and others less so so what you really want in those circumstances is a set of instructions um which you can uh, which are commensurate with your level of vulnerability now it's not difficult to assess your level of vulnerability and work has already been done on how to make some form of assessment I mean we never know but anyway exactly what we're vulnerable to I might have a heart attack tomorrow I don't know but you know, as such you can say I am you know 75 years old um, but I'm in good health I, I'm not overweight I don't have any comorbidities I have a certain risk if I get ill that um, it will be bad but you know you can judge that there are numbers a lot of data out there and then you can um make such decisions which also of course depend should depend on your personal appetite and need for risk taking and you know this is something that we conduct every day within at an individual level and also at the level of the social contract we tolerate a whole range of risks because we all want to live life to the fullest and uh, create that opportunity for others so I think if those are the precepts that you used, rather than thinking how do I, um, you know, legislate this, which is what I, I spoke to a member of Sage recently, mm. and I said, well, why aren't? What's happened here? And his response was that it's impossible to legislate mm. if you say everyone over sixty-five needs to self-isolate. How do you legislate that? Mm. So the point. The answer to that is you don't need to legislate it. You just recommend it. You make it recommendation, which is what, you know, how Sweden has operated. Mm. But then also within that, but, I mean, this, this the answer to this has to be long. Um, so then let's say you recommend and everyone decides, okay, if you are over 65 and you live on your own um, or with your partner or in a group of people who um, are also over 65 or about, or even if you're 65 and your partner is 45, you can decide that as a unit you will um, is- isolate yourselves as much as possible. That's exactly what's happening during the lockdown period. So there's nothing materially different to the what's happening in lockdown to that kind of that level of uh, self-isolation or, or social distancing, and the thing about focused protection is because the rest of the population would be going about their business as normal, the epidemic would be over within three to six months, whereas we're sitting here now in mm. December, mid-December almost, mm. um, and it's still going on. And that's mm. because we, went, we locked everyone up. So there is that trade-off there. But finally, to, and then, of course, there are people in care homes, in particular settings where they are particularly vulnerable, um, and that's where most of the deaths have occurred, so care homes and in hospitals. But there are ways in which those can be made infection-free over that period of time, which does involve the care workers also having to self-isolate and uh, putting in a bunch of measures to make sure that visits are infection-free, but one of the other things that needs to be avoided is what actually happened during lockdown, which is that people were shut away. They were shut into their rooms and left to die. And Mm -hmm. that is absolutely horrific. So when one says we have to protect the vulnerable, um, protection should be seen as something which is much more nuanced than just Mm -hmm. sealing them off. You have to mm-hmm. look at their needs. Also, you know, if I were a 95 year old, I might say, look, I don't really care. I'm happy mm-hmm. to meet, meet up with everybody. I want my grandchildren to kiss me because it could mm-hmm. be the last kiss I receive from them. Yeah. And the yeah last. No. All of these yeah. things needed to be dealt with at a completely different level in recognition of the multi dimensional nature of our needs. Um, finally, the last point here is is to do with vulnerable people who are situated in the community, and the sad truth is, and the hypocrisy of those who, you know, say, "Well, what about multi generational families?" By which they mean the poor. Mm-hmm. Um, is this that during lockdown, what happens? And Martin pulled off and I had recently wrote in the Toronto Sun about this with some data that what happens is the people in these multi-generational households are deemed essential workers. Hmm. And they go out and drive taxis and buses and deliver our food and clean our hospitals and do all these this essential work, despite having comorbidities. Mm-hmm. And they are the people who should have been sheltered and looked after, and if necessary, evacuated or the vulnerable in those could be separated for that period of time when the pandemic was raging i mean that is an exceptional circumstance and if you have to evacuate certain sectors to um that's not you know that's what we do in a war we evacuate the children to the countryside you know it's these are not it is an exceptional situation We can do exceptional things but we need to do them what's really important is for them not to be dismissed out of hand as if they are callous statements made by mm. people who um, are primarily interested in preserving the, uh, personal um, liberty, because mm. that was not the point here
0: at all yeah no and that was also my point of of the economic difficulty in sheltering the people who actually needed sheltering because they were as you said so ironically that they were considered the most essential people now and they were the ones that needed the most protection but anyway to conclude your expertise sunetra also covers vaccination now in the uk they have started mass vaccination program now, when I think of this vaccine, it makes me happy because I have missed teaching and traveling and I haven't seen my family for over a year now. And I hope this vaccine will allow me to do and see all these things and people again. But on the other hand, I can't get Plato's worries out about the pharmacon out of my head. And these worries were obviously that the vaccine only cures the symptoms. So what are your considerations about this vaccine or about these vaccines? Yeah,
1: the vaccines, I think they are... Um You know, fantastic news, because actually what they, we we don't know whether they will protect against infection or protect, um, prevent transmission. We don't know any of these things, but what they do is exactly what we need them to do um, under focused protection, which is to protect against disease and death. Mm -hmm. So what the vaccines allow us to do is to immediately put in place this regime of focused protection whereby we vaccinate those who are vulnerable and the fact, and this is um, also ties in with the fact that, you know, we've got safety data and whatnot, but at this stage, uh, you know, one would be cautious about giving this to a 20-year-old who has a zero chance of dying from mm-hmm. the disease, but uh, there should be no hesitation in offering it to someone who has a risk of dying. So I think it works out quite nicely that if, you, if we immediately start to use this, these vaccines to protect the vulnerable, um, and, with, and while we were getting up to that point where most of the vulnerable are protected, if we shield them in the meantime uh, and immediately return to normal on other fronts, mm-hmm. I think we will eventually end up with a situation where you have natural immunity herd immunity, protecting, providing a large wall of protection, and that would be sort of reinforced synergistically by um, the vaccine-induced protection among the vulnerable. So I think that would be the best of, of both worlds.
0: Okay thank you so much for this Sunitra. It has been a real pleasure talking to you and I can't stress enough how important the Great Barrington Declaration was as a philosophical gesture. Disagreeing, discussing, discerning, argumenting and judging are the most important aspects of our public life and if there ever was a time for more of this than today is the answer. So thank you again Sunitra. My pleasure. And thanks also to the listeners for having joined us for one more episode of Big Voices. My name is Christophe van Houten. Thank you and goodbye.